Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. Um, if you read my blog, you've probably already seen my review of the book we're going to be talking about. My guest today is Craig DeLouis. Did I pronounce that correct? You did. Yeah. Uh, Craig DeLouis is a American-born, Canadian-living uh, author of many genres, thrillers, uh, horror, and in this case, a political dystopia. Um Greg has been on my radar, somebody I've wanted to read for a long time because his books have sound amazing and I love his um, film reviews on Facebook. He's like me, posts at least a little something about everything he watches. And I appreciate that because that's how I find things. Um, and, uh, but he recently, or a couple of years ago, wrote a book called Our War, which I've got here from my library. And um, Our War is, a book that I was very excited to read and to talk about. So we're going to do some general stuff at first, but we're eventually mostly going to focus on our war. And like I do when I drill down on a novel, we'll do non-spoilers and then we'll give you a spoiler warning um, because especially uh, my the the scene that kind of broke me in this book is, is towards the end. And so as a writer to writer, I really got to, I, I got to drill down on that last scene, Craig. So um, Craig, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. All right. So and I noticed on the book you had, is that a, was that an extra dust jacket? You, like a dust cover you put on there? Oh, uh, no, this is the library copy. I got it. Oh, I got you. Okay. I yeah. thought, man, you're really serious about your books. <laughs> <laughs> My library is, but um, yeah. But uh, so where did you grow up and how did you get into writing and storytelling? Um, I got to at least do the introductory thing. I asked Norman Spinrad this question and he told me it was a stupid question, but I got to do it. Well, I'll, I'll make it, I'll make it as quick and painless as possible. How's that? That'll be a good compliment. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in New Jersey. I wanted to be a writer since I was nine years old. Uh, my first influence was Robert E. Howard, and he kept me sane in high school. I grew up, I was a, the weird kid, the nerd who grew up in a small high school uh, in the suburbs of a small town in rural New Jersey. So I grew up on a farm, and but I was the kid who just did not fit into this environment. So I, I looked to writing to take me away and basically keep me sane through all those topsy-turvy teen years. I fell in love with Robert E. Howard's writing. I mean, I look back at it now, it's very purple, it's very pulpy, maybe not the kind of stuff I write right now, but at the time it was really powerful to this teen boy who wanted to be somebody else and wanted to be somewhere else. And so that really, I really caught on fire with reading and then I caught on fire with writing because I wanted to be the guy who could control that world and provide it to other people. So some of my friends were super into Dungeons and Dragons I was I liked that stuff, but I wanted to actually fix it in time as a as a narrative, as a story. So I, I started writing, did the usual thing. I, I think all writers do in their teen years of writing like 10 novels and never finishing any because I would always be chasing 
the next, you know, shiny object. And uh, then from there, uh, finally climbed that Everest, finished a novel in my early uh, 20s. Uh, and that novel was never published. That's still a trunk piece. Um, came close, came close on a sci-fi novel, spent the entire 90s as this guy in a Kafka novel, feeling like I was invited to a party I wasn't allowed to attend. You know, I was mass, I started assembly line sending out letters, getting the rejections. I would change the title and the synopsis and I would send it back. And, like, and then finally got a hit. Ooh, that's a because, trick I've never tried. Yeah, yeah. It, it was born of desperation because I was honestly tired of my self-addressed stamped envelopes, S-A-S-E to the old people listening to uh, that. I would send it to agents and they would send it my you know query back to me with a form rejection they didn't even look at it but they used my sase to send me a little flyer uh, for their book how to get published right. I like, <laughs> so I, it was maddening and i was you know and i was really getting depressed thinking how does anybody ever break into this but finally got lucky I had written this novel called Paranoia, which was something like Chuck Palahniuk might have written if he was drunk on a bad weekend. And I was in a phase where I was like, you know, I read like 10 of his books and wanted to write one, like just like him, which happens to rookie writers as well. And, um, and it got published. It was about conspiracy theories. And man, that took me into like some haunted houses, I'll tell you. And uh <laughs> And and this was back in the late 90s, so like it wasn't a crazy QAnon like is now, but like it was pretty weird. And uh, so I wrote this novel saying, okay, what if all this is real? And let's take this seriously. And um, it was a lot of fun. It got published by a microbrew press in the Pacific Northwest, and that led to a sci-fi novel, and then that led to a zombie novel getting published, and that exploded. I got in with Permuta Press, that wrote two more zombie novels. They exploded. I joined HWA, I got an agent, I started to work my way up. Uh, th that led to uh, Suffer the Children, a and, and vampire undead zombie kind of book, apocalyptic book being published with Simon & Schuster, their gallery imprint. And yeah, that's that the one I really want to read uh, next because the concept is just awesome. Yeah, it's one. It's still one of my popular. And I think I think because of the it's so high concept. Um, and then the and then after that. I got a different agent and I ended up writing a couple books for Hachette, uh, their Orbit imprint, which is their spec fin, thick imprint. Uh, that was One of Us, which was a, uh, a dark urban fantasy, Our War, which is a dystopian thriller, and then uh, most recently, The Children of Red Peak, which is um, psychological cult horror. So, so how did you end up writing about lighting? This, this is very interesting to me. Like, I, you, don't, you don't have to go deep on this, but it's just very interesting to me that when I did my research, how did that happen? Well, I ended, when I got out of college, uh, I, I grew a beard. I had a cardigan. I wasn't the guy who lived in his mom's basement but because I was living upstairs on the second floor of her house and I, I did this for a year and I was temping and I was like I'm going to write the great American novel I'm going to grow I'm not going to cut my hair grow my you know go shave until this thing is I was like it's so dramatic and I wrote so I wrote this novel and it didn't go anywhere and I was like oh wow I think I need a job so I got it took a job at a PR an ad agency and I was in public relations and 
this was during the uh, recession in the early 90s. And so things really sucked and they, for job prospects and marketing. So I ended up, uh, our firm was growing because we, we had a lot of lighting manufacturers who were selling things like compact fluorescent light bulbs. And I got kind of turned on by it. I was, I was the youngest young guy who was like sort of environmentally aware. And I thought, oh, wow, I put in a light bulb and I save energy in it. And I could actually calculate the number of carbon emissions I was reducing, like actually to the pound, right? Depending on my utility. And it was really cool. And so I, I sort of fell for it. And I liked the cleanness of the technical writing. There's like, it's either right or wrong. You know, There's, it's not like fiction. And I uh, worked my way up the agency, even though you're not supposed to specialize when you're young. I was like, I'm going to specialize when I'm young because this is where the agency is going and I can move up by being more valuable. And that's exactly what happened. And um, from there, I ended up working for, uh, I moved to New York City. Uh, I was working in Princeton, New Jersey, moved to New York City, ended up the editor of a lighting design magazine and had done one of the first small presses that used exclusively docutech i was publishing these technical books as an editor and i sold that moved to new york city was editor of this magazine moved up and then we got bought i lost my job um very quickly after i got promoted to run the whole show i was <laughs> we got bought and that was it and then i went on on my own and just have been writing ever since about lighting and it's something i can do quickly efficiently there's a it does use my brain creatively and it gets me writing every day and teaches me that uh, more uh, things about craft i couldn't get from just doing fiction teaches me discipline instead of waiting for the monkey on my back the muse the lightning to strike i could be like this is a job i have to do this and so right. i started you know it really taught me to write every day and take treat it as a discipline and treat it and take craft seriously and it also provided the the um, economic security that I could just try whatever I wanted to try that I, that, that where I could go crazy, where I could be like, I'm gonna write a zombie novel. Uh, why not? I, cause yeah. I, my bills are being paid. I can do this. And so that's why I got into the light, how I got into lighting and why I'm still with it. It's um, it's safe. It's reliable. And it's uh, and, you know, and I enjoy the industry. I know a lot of people. In it. Well, it's funny because um what I mean, I was trying to think about like, because you write in a lot of different genres, and uh, you know, sometimes publishers want to pigeonhole people into like one or, or the other. Mm -hmm. And I think it's better to say, if somebody says, Are you a horror writer? Or are you a science fiction writer? to just say yes, uh, <laughs> you know, and not, um, but do you, do you? Do you take the Joe Lansdale approach that I am the genre or do you do you define yourself in, in any particular way as a writer like of genre? Yeah, I just I just consider myself as writer of speculative fiction. You know, it's kind of the easiest thing. It depends, though, if I'm if I'm talking to somebody in an interview, for example, or at a conference or and. I'm talking about my latest book, which is say a horror novel. I will I will express myself as a horror writer. Uh, but you know, in generic marketing, like on my website, you know, I don't call myself a horror writer. I don't really care. I, I just I write I write what I write, and I, I I I'd always rather have the discussion, you know, uh, 
when I'm talking to somebody just on the street or something that it would be about a book rather than than uh, than me as a writer, because I think me as a writer, isn't that interesting? Whereas the books, they're just I think they're tremendously interesting. <laughs> Uh, hold on a second. Yeah, I mean, so genre doesn't, you know, a speculative fiction writer can be horror, science fiction, or fantasy, whatever, and then it is kind of a good catch-all for that. And uh, speaking of speculative stories, uh, this dystopia and our war, um, I am going to focus mostly on it because admittedly it is, this is the first of your work that I've read. I will read more. I was very impressed. So, um, and I can't, yeah, no, no problem at all. Yeah. I can be a tough cookie. So, um, and picky and, uh, but so for, with our war, um, this is an interesting kind of, well, because I almost put this in a subgenre of speculative fiction that I like to call the warning novel. And I don't know how many people refer to it that way, but I do. <laughs> and a lot of my favorite novels are warning novels like The Sheep Look Up by John Bruner. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the more classic examples are 1984, of course, and The Last Babylon. But um I like when a speculative fiction writer, I think it's the best thing that you can do in science fiction is to kind of look at the future and say, um, you know, here's something that could possibly happen that would be really terrible and let's try and prevent it by mm -hmm. talking about um, how it could happen. So um, I have an idea or a guess where this novel came from because it's pretty, you know, a, you were just the one to sit down and do this, <laughs> to write this novel. I think a lot of us had the fear of this novel coming true. Where did the idea start? Where did the kernel happen? What was the, the light bulb moment? Yeah, I don't think anybody would look at the idea for my book and say, wow, that was, that's, what are you Where talking about? Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, totally. although, although some people did, at least while I was writing it, it was still something that was unimaginable. Uh, the, the idea of civil war in the United States. Uh, in like the modern in in our time See, and, because like you were writing this in 2017 18 right yeah 17 yeah yeah see i i the moment that turd was elected i i i was worried so i'm one of the people that if you had told me i would yeah. have been like yeah bring it on because i'm definitely well, when, worried I, about when it. i wrapped it up and i was handing it to my editor i noticed like there were articles in places like the new york times saying what if Trump refused to leave office when he was <laughs> when it's time for him to go like and I was like oh wow you know this is actually and what would a civil war look like you know so this is what was actually starting to be talked about in the mainstream media which is normally a gatekeeper against crazy ideas like you know something like well you know what would a civil war look like in the U.S. and where that is that possible here. Uh, the conventional wisdom was like, no, it's not possible at all. And then during the Trump years, it became, well, what is it? Maybe. <laughs> what could? What would that look like? Well, uh, the yeah, people so closest to him said, like, uh, like Michael Cohen and all the people that worked for him, like they all said, he's never going to accept it. He is yeah, never exactly. Going to... Yeah, and so yeah, so the idea came from uh, basically 20, 30 years of being politically aware. I mean, this is this was not. I, I look at somebody like Trump as a, a, sim, a symptom, not not a disease. 
Right. And, and then as a catalyst for something big to happen, rather than, you know, these the match, not the, not the kindling. Yeah. Uh, the kindling is, uh, you know, four, five decades of growing income inequality, which is, um, which historically and in every society uh, creates political unrest. And when you get political unrest, you have more, uh, greater tribalization. And we have very powerful interests in the United States and, and in other countries like my new, my home, my adopted country of Canada, where they, those interests um, want that division because it, it keeps our mind off the really bad stuff we should be focusing on, like wages and income security, healthcare, and things like that. Um, they want us hating each other and they want us tri tri tribalized. I think it's politically useful and that's why there are entire cable channels built around it. And I, and I also think that people crave it. Like it's a lot harder to say those people are different than me. I have actually have a lot more in common with them and we should actually unite around common interests, like say a higher minimum wage. Uh, it's much easier to just hate them for all these stereotypes because tribalization is a, is a fundamental human trait and the propaganda plays on that. It accelerates that. It's politically useful for, uh, for politicians. It's economically useful for uh, the media barons and the media and the rich. And so they're, it's just going to continue until we say, you know, just stop. Uh, we actually and realize we actually have more in common. So a warning, yes, I would like I really hope that people look at this novel and see it as a, a dystopia, but one that's a little closer to home and a lot more possible than something like, say, 1984 in our lifetime. And to say, you know, how, what can I do to change this or what can I do? Um, and I don't think the answer is to be nicer. I think the answer is to see that uh, we as Americans have far more in common than uh, what we see divide us and that a lot of what divide us are uh, stereotypes or they're man it's manufactured and uh, it it's entrenched. So I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, there's a lot of ha actual hatred and a lot of this hatred's based on things that aren't even real. It's crazy, but it's something that we will need to defeat if we want to uh, be anything, be, be great, you know, that America would be great. Uh, because what makes America great is not some standard of living or some idyllic past that we idolize. It's uh, this this common idea of what the country is and what it offers. And if we can't, uh, the American dream, and if we can't agree on what that is anymore, or if there are multiple narratives, multiple stories of what America is, then it's really just an just another multi-ethnic empire. There's nothing special about it at all. And it well, well, so what? So one thing that I, I I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just sure. I'm wondering too, like because bipartisanship has been on my mind lately uh, a lot too. Because I I one of the science fiction novels I'm working on trying to sell right now is is very much themed about bipartisanship. Um, uh, it, it has to do with a very different. <laughs> Uh, inciting conflict, but um, so I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm as radical left as you can get, um, mm. as far as is it, me personally. But I do have friends that are are right right wing friends, and it's funny because mm -hmm. 
have one friend in particular, like he and I will go at it. We will just politically, we will rip, rip each other's heads off over things. But when it comes down to it, if, you know, all of a sudden he wants to talk about Hyperion. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. And we'll have real fun talking about that. And yeah. I'll forget all of it because yeah. I'm a person that can do that. Um, I'm the same way. Yeah. Okay, good. Cause, cause I got the feeling with our war and one of the things that I appreciated about it is that you put time and energy into making sure that both sides of the conflict uh, were real and solid characters. And I thought, mm-hmm myself as a writer like one of the biggest moments of growth for me because i'm a radical environmentalist i'm militantly vegan and have been for almost 30 years and like the first time i wrote a story about i did a story about a tree set where i actually made one of the logger characters a character was a big turning point for me as a writer because i was like all right i got to start thinking about this guy and i think What's the strength of our war is that it, were you trying to think about like trying to make this novel? So it's, cause it's definitely left sympathetic, but, but do you, were you concerned about trying to get it down the middle a little bit? Like, I'm wondering just that note of it. I'm sorry. That's a yeah, lot of talking for a little ab- No, no worries. I, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. I did not want it to be a screed. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of, one of the or problems, or, yeah. yeah. One of the problems with, with this type of genre is it's, it tends to be dominated, especially apocalyptic dystopia where those two, mm-hmm. it, they tend to be dominated by right-wing authors writing wish fulfillment stories. So the, the socialists are, they're Marxists. They've duped all the majority good people of America who are now being put in re- re-education camps and everybody's got jackboots and they're this plucky band of Americans who refuse to give up their AR-15s and they're fighting back. Like I read a book like this, like you, you, you want to, what, you know, I did actually put in a few things that were actually more realistic or, re- or were, not more realistic, but were realistic in the book but so cartoonish because some of these people are so cartoonish yeah. that my editor asked me to take it out. So nobody will believe that. And I'm like, well, these people exist. They're just cartoonish. Yeah. I just wrote a book where I, I, I had to write a realistic president because we've just for the last four years had the most ridiculous president ever. I was like, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. If you, if you, you couldn't write Trump in a book because nobody would have believed you. They would have yeah. thought you were writing some propaganda piece like about how evil and crazy, because he was, the, that's who he was. And he was, he was a cartoon character. So <laughs> Which, it, was, and, it was really hard. But, uh, but some know, of my right wing friends feel the same way. So yeah, you know. well, good. They're, they're, yeah. I, I, I like people who have consistent principle regardless of where they are in the political spectrum. Because otherwise they're just hacks. They're just, yeah. they just want to win. And it's not about, reality or getting something done or something good happening it's just about feelings of winning and i i can't abide arguing people like debating people like that because they all they want to do is win and then you're trapped in their script and i and i've been in that script and it's boring and i just don't want to do it anymore so i don't even argue don't even engage people like that anymore but yeah for the book i wanted to be fair and I, and i didn't want to i wanted to also avoid uh, the tactical, like I didn't want to say like 
you know, they allude to things like healthcare, they allude to things like guns, they allude to things like vote voting rights and things like, but I didn't want to get into the minutia of arguing because I didn't want to get trapped into de debating a point back and forth that was too minute. I wanted to really broad stroke it. The, 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 the right-wingers in the book see the world a certain way and the left-wingers in the book see the world a certain way. And these are in, are in fundamental conflict because they produce different stories about what America is. And, and it results in a tribalism that means that maybe after this war, we can't, they, we can't live together anymore. Like it's just broken. Like there's more than one America now, right? Yeah. And so all that remains to happen is for the company to be, country to be separated so that it matches those, sto those stories of what America is. And so, um, uh, like, so the, those core ideas, like the left-wingers in the book are very uh, collaborationist. They're very about the group. What does the group need? And, and how, do I, how does the group see me and how do I see the group and how do I benefit the group so that the group takes care of me? It's very much, this takes a village. And the right-wing view in the book is very much, this is a dog-eat-dog -dog world and everybody's after you and you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps because no one's going to help you and no one owes you a thing. And so you, you have to be tough. And so and there's, a, there's a basis for that in how um, when we saw like the kind of like dog eating its tail um, in yep. the insurrection versus the globalization and the um, Occupy movement, which... Yes, you know, you know, so so we, we saw that and, and I think you're reflecting reality with that. And, and, and that was great. It, it, this is fundamental psychology for the, the two. I didn't make up those worldviews. I mean, it's reflected in their politics and it's yeah. it's it's rooted in their psychology based on all. The, yeah. And you have characters that even, you know, Mitch is a character in the book who's a right winger, but uh, very sympathetic and 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 um, but yeah, we'll, he's lost everything. Yeah, well, we'll get to him. We'll get yeah. to him when we get to spoilers. Okay. But was there a moment in the Trump madness that was kind of like, okay, I got to write this book, or just like something that, like, um, well, it was his election. But as as things progressed, uh, you know, the, he in the book, I actually originally conceived as a president is loses the election and refuses to go. Uh, yeah. But I, I didn't think anybody actually honestly was going to believe that. So yeah. I did it based on an impeachment because impeachment's more political and it's more of an attack and it's fuzzier, right, constitutionally. Yeah. And so we ended up with both. I know. Yeah, I, I know. So in the book, I, t I knew I was taking a leap, but this is fiction. I needed my what if. I had some Republicans crossover. And, and, and they voted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They voted, yeah. uh, they voted, tr so this, this President Marsh, like, um, who's this Trump-like figure, is voted, uh, is convicted in the Senate. So he, he's impeached and convicted. And he refuses to go, and there's a giant Occupy uh, the Mall, the National Mall, movement. And so the thousands of people there, uh, you know, you got to go. You lost. You know the the and then these gunmen start shooting into the crowd, and Congress is ends up leaving uh, the town, and that now it's president against Congress, it's blue against red in this country, and the battle lines start being drawn. It, it, that triggers 
a January 6th insurrection all over the country. So like, which was partly inspired by the wildlife Oregon refuge, which is honestly a, a trial run for what they did at the Capitol. And yep. every time they handled so. the kids gloves, they would do another one there. Then it became state Capitol during the pandemic. Then it became, or, or, or uh, there was something else. Then it became the, the Capitol building in Washington. And they thought they would be coddled and loved and respected every, just like they were in previous ones, right? And they got a big surprise. Um, well, I so, would say it's somewhere in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. I got right. it. But, but well, they, they, they were, uh, so anyway, the, the, that inspired it. Um, uh, also, what, what ins- but, uh, you know, I'll, so it, it was tr- Trump himself, based on all this tribalization, based on the growing militancy, terrorism, and arming of the right wing. And I was like, well, what if there was a catalyst that set all this off? What would that look like? Where would that take us? And what would that look like? And, and how would, you know, how would we deal with it? And so that, so that was the basic inspiration. But while I was, you know, when the, after the book came out, it was really weird to see so much of the language in the book mirrored in real life, like the threats of civil war. The, this is a coup by the deep state when the real impeachment came around the January 6th insurrection, the promise of civil war, the, the, the three percenters, like a lot of the stuff in the book turned out to be prescient, but it's not like I was a prophet. I, I literally read the writing written on the wall in gigantic letters. I mean, it was just there yeah, if anybody yeah. wanted to see it. Well, and I have this, I, I can relate to what you were going through because I wrote a climate change warning novel, um, Ring of Fire, which... Yep from uh, Dead Eye Press and, 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 and it's all about, um, the whole thing's about wildfires and, and like, and so when Australia was burning down and when like Portland and, you know, um, was going through all that, I, I had the situation of like, I didn't want to be callously promoting my book and say, as, as a, I told you so type yeah. thing. And, and, and on January 6th, I mean, it had to be very strange for you to watch the level to which it got. And, and, um, I was not surprised at all. Yeah. Yeah. You, you weren't, yeah. and you, you had every right to, to do, uh, a, 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 I told you so at those of us who still live in the, in this border. In these well, I, I avoided that. I mean, I waited and I didn't, I didn't want to go there at all. So I waited until I tried to wait a while and then, said, okay, now I can promote my book again <laughs> without being yeah. exploitative of tragedy. Because, you yeah. know, there's seri- this is, it was very serious. It was really serious. And, and I broke, I, you know, I don't know if, how much you get political on, on Facebook. I, I sometimes do, but on other people's pages, on my own page, I tend to try and avoid it because it ends up this giant mess. But that time, you know, with the January 6th thing, I was like, this is so messed up. Yeah. You have to see this as messed up. And if you don't, you're part of the messed up period. Yeah, you are part That's of the it. messed up. Yeah. And, and a lot of, um, in the book, you have a, 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 a and I'm going to read the quote directly, social media had promised to bring people together, but it helped to polarize them among new tribes, um, isolated and separate echo chambers. I, this is something that should be fairly obvious to everyone that this is mm-hmm. happening. You know, that the echo chambers like are in, you know, it's really because I'm of two minds when I see John Boehner on his 
a book tour right now. Um, you know, kind of like Dr. Burke's, like after Trump is gone, saying like how sorry she is that you know all this stuff happened. And John Boehner was Speaker of the House when all this was building, and now he's telling us, yeah, these guys are crazy, and mm-hmm. they're doing us. Pull- well, well dude you were there you know like they created help us yeah but the monster was great when they could control it yeah but but when they lost control of the monster and it started to eat them then they they then now they're upset yeah and the hard part you know we never imagined when you know all the times we read 1984 those of us who are old enough to read it pre-internet we never imagined that we would actually like sign on to big brother right Mm -hmm. and to you know and uh i just recently read a book called uh we have been harmonized that's about the surveillance state in china and how they do social maintenance through social media and through social credits and all these things it was interesting because as a philip k dickhead doing the dickheads podcast um dick was writing about China and social control in the fifties and the man who japed and, you know, now we're, we're seeing a lot of these things happen. Social media. It's so interesting how it's like this, like never ending live, like consistently streaming beast that, you know, create that tightens the echo chamber instead of like widening the, Mm -hmm. the scope of how we talk about things. So I'm just glad it was there because it was so important to, 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 to what you were saying in the book. And I don't mm-hmm. really have a question. I just, I wanted to say. No, I, I like what you said about part. signing on to Big Brother. Like, it, yeah, you're supposed to read The Handmaid's Tale and be horrified, not think, oh, Gilead's a really good idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like something in the book where the, um, one of the characters observes of this right-wing militia, these patriots, right? That she ends up coming into contact with that, you know, they, 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 they want to, these people arm themselves to fight tyranny, but only unless they got to be the tyrants, you know? And, and so if they got to be the tyrants, they weren't against tyranny anymore. (laughs) Right. And um, now uh, let's talk about the setting of this book because uh, sure. now this is where, um, and I do have a lot of listeners because I come from Indiana from back home Um, uh, I grew up in Bloomington, which is, uh, um, an hour South of in, in Indianapolis, um, uh, a college town for those who, who are not familiar with Indiana, uh, Bloomington is where Indiana university is. My father was a professor there. So, but I grew up in punk rock. So we used to go to lots of hardcore shows in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. I had lots of friends in Indianapolis through the hardcore scene, And I spent a lot of time in the city, even though I never actually lived in Indianapolis. But um, Indiana is not a huge state. So if you have a Hoosier experience, you you are going to know a little bit about all of the state to a certain degree. Um, And so part of my interest in reading this book was that you said it in Indianapolis. Um, Now, I know uh, you talk a lot about it being a blue city in a sea of red. And that is true of Indianapolis. It's also true of Bloomington, which you did mention Bloomington in the book at one point, Fort Wayne and a couple of the other. Uh, let's remember. We looked up voting records. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. um, we did 
uh, vote for Obama in one of the elections, if not both. Um, I think the first one, um, Obama won Indiana, which was crazy. Um, and, and speaking as somebody who grew up in one of those blue, I, I mean, Bloomington is basically like the Berkeley of Indiana, if such a thing could exist. I mean, we have a people's park, right? Mm-hmm. But it also exists because the Klan bombed a store that was on that spot. The hippies took it over, which um, is actually a huge part of, uh, I, I'm writing a novel about that park, but that's a whole other story. Um, but Bloomington mm-hmm. is a very interesting place, but Indianapolis is also a very interesting place. And I'm just wondering like, like, how did you choose Indianapolis? Well, I really, okay, uh, a couple a couple reasons. Uh, one reason is I wanted to find a city where that would be very blue, surrounded by a very, very red rural area. And because the Civil War, as I imagine it in our war, looks nothing like the last Civil War of the 1860s. It looks a lot more like Bosnia in the 1990s. And in this war, the, the U.S. military is sort of, uh, they end up getting sidelined. And there's, there's reasons for that. I don't want, I, I could get bogged down on it, but I won't right now. We'll, uh, we'll have the spoiler section to do that. <laughs> okay, yeah, you got it. Um, it would just be a huge aside. Like, so, so, but to get to, because I want to answer your question. Uh, the, so what ends up happening is that the battle lines get drawn, not between red and blue states or it pretty, any, pretty much anything else other than red and blue voting districts, and which are really the cities and the, the country. Uh, the countryside is predominantly uh, conservative and votes Republican. Uh, cities are predominantly liberal and vote Democratic. And so that those that's where the battle lines are largely drawn in this second civil war. What ends up happening is um, when uh, President Marsh is convicted, the, everything goes down in D.C., and a national coordinated armed insur- uh, armed protest takes place at all these government buildings across the United States, and they find that they're, they're, the opposition they get is so weak that they become emboldened and they just keep going. And they find a lot of sympathy in the rural areas, so they just keep rolling and rolling and rolling and gathering strength until they hit the cities where they're up against major metropolitan police departments that are having their own civil war, right and left, but where the left wins, not so much the left, but more the center, the center wins. And they, they, uh, they say, you're not coming in here. And so these, these cities end up under siege. So, which is very similar to the experience with Sarajevo in the Bosnian civil war. And this was just a nightmarish low tech war of trenches and, you know, home, you know, weapons you would get out of, out of your garage, you know, the gun safe in your house or whatever, wherever, wherever you can get them from, all sorts of different things. And so I wanted to uh, get it sort of like a, an ideal city that where I could put a, a, a blue city in a, in, a, in a sea of red. Indiana is, is notoriously uh, Republican or at least rural Indiana is. And so I thought, oh, even so much the better. It's sort of in the middle of it. It's it's kind of quintessentially middle America. Uh, in fact, the city is called the Crossroads of America. So I thought that that really worked for it as well. Crossroads of America, I thought symbolically, thematically was really cool. And um, yeah, and that was it. I mean, that was that was kind of like where where I wanted to be. I wanted to have a blue city and a red state under siege 
uh, thematically where it would be middle America, uh, where you have, you know, where it, it could go either way uh, after the war ends. It could become, you know, the, the, the blue side could win or the red side. Yeah, this is not your, this is totally not your fault, but I had to divorce my knowledge having grown up in Indiana from my reading experience of it because um, you did a really good job of researching the state because there was a lot of times where I was like, okay, well, yeah, he knows this and he found this out. And, um, but, uh, you know, and I understand why we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but um, I understand why you didn't why it was kind of besides the point to get into the issues of race um, in this book. But for, for somebody that knows Indiana, that knows that there is such a racially charged history, mm-hmm. it was kind of hard for me to divorce my mind from, like, I understand why you didn't want to do that in the novel, mm-hmm. but realistically, race would play a huge role in a conflict like this in Indiana. It just could mm-hmm. not. Um, I'm not, it's not that long ago that my high school that I went to in Bloomington, uh, for example, would not send black athletes to play at football games at Martinsville, which is like a little town between Bloomington and Indianapolis because the clan was too strong there and the black players were afraid to go in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, um, the way the Indianapolis is set up, it's very segregated. Um, and part of one of the reasons why the voting blocks are the way that they are in inside of Indianapolis is partially because of that racial segregation. Mm-hmm. So it like, I kind of had to divorce myself because I understood, I understood even when I was reading, even before you told me that, you know, the greater conflict is kind of more the issue, but I just mentioned it in my review because it was just, it's, it's just a little thing that, that I saw, and I don't think that you completely ignored it in the book, but I understand why, but you could t- t- tell uh, the listeners, like, you know, specifically why you didn't want to address th- those issues and make it all about race. Right, because, um, yeah, I, as we were saying before we got on, uh, the there are there are um, African American militias and in inside Indianapolis um, after the war starts the police department stops the right wing militias from entering the city uh, this sort of de, de, de facto siege starts and everybody in Indianapolis a lot of the just people who live there I'm not even gonna call them left um, they be, they become radicalized they become left over time. But at first, they're just like people. Like people who live there who may lean one way or the other. They beca- they end up arming themselves and forming gangs to basically protect their street. So you have like the you know the the firefighters <laughs> militia, and you have the library militia. You know militia around protecting the books in this library from being destroyed. Um, and they form to dig in in their neighborhoods and keep the right wing militias from from getting in. So there are African American uh, militias and the strongly African-American neighborhoods, like particularly where a lot of the fighting's taking place in the book on the West side. I have a good friend who I know would be leading those militias. (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm not going to shout his name out, but uh, um, I think he knows who he is. 
So, yeah, um, I think a lot of us know somebody who'd probably be on both sides of this, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but uh, yeah, and then the other, but but I didn't want to make it um, an African American militia, and, the, and because I'm not African American, and I just am sensitive about going there. Uh, this is a time where you know representation is a good idea, but maybe not repre directly rep representing, if that makes sense, um, mm -hmm. the experience. So I just. The, the other thing is, um, I wasn't sure if I could portray authentically the, the the racial experience there. And then the last thing was I wanted a lot of our conversation, political conversation in the United States right now is about the cultural war, whereas a lot of what our problems are are also economic and where we actually have a lot more in common. And I wanted to show that this is a this is not just about race. So I mean a lot of people say this is something where I think the Trumpers get a bad rap and you know partly they deserve it because they associate with people who are you know white supremacists but um or won't denounce them or whatever. Um but I, I you know there a lot of them are not uh at, at least uh, overtly and they uh you know they lost their job and they're angry and they're they 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 got an explanation that they like and they think that this america is going to be their america and it's going to be fixed this certain way and they're 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 they'll fight for that in the book um but i so i didn't want to get bogged down like that america is you know trump's election triggered some nascent race war that now is is going to become overt in the future uh, race is certainly a part of it, um, but it's not all of it. And so I wanted—I didn't want it to get sidetracked so that that was too front and center, if that makes sense. All right, I have one more question before we get into spoilers. And then, so, um, uh, and that is, there's a part where um, Hannah is talking to another character and she says, Sabrina said that they should be punished. She said, there's no going back after this, no living with them again, not after what they've done. I can see her point. They declared war on reality and elected a maniac who almost broke the country. When he failed, they rose up and broke it themselves. You can't reason with them and they hate our guts. This was really, this was very poignant for me because I was of the position after, even though I'm a person that believes in bipartisanship and believes that I have friends on the right side, on, on the left side of the spectrum. Um, I consider, I try to be independent in my thinking, but I don't, I'm, I'm over forgiveness at this point. Mm -hmm. um, the woman who was shot that day at the Capitol was a Q nut, but she was from my neighborhood. So I've here in San Diego. So even though, I'm not a fan of the way she was living her life and the choices she was making. Um, it, it's very real to me that, that she's dead, you know, and um, because she was local, I've seen her grandfather on the news talking about her like a human being, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I look at the insurrection and I see, you know, I really do have the, I do have the question, like, can we forgive? Like, can we, cause I'm kind of leaning on the side of like, if you took it to the level of insurrection, no, no, mm -hmm. um, I don't. I think that they need to be punished. I think everybody that walked in the door, even if all they did was walk around and take selfies, mm -hmm. if they walked in that door um, to try and stop the election or with the, 
the idea to stop the forwarding of the election. And this is coming from a radical leftist who, mm-hmm. you know, has protested a lot of things. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I think they crossed a line there. And I don't think we mm-hmm. should forgive. Now, how do you feel about that as the author of this book? Because you I, obviously thought about this question. Oh, I, I think they should be prosecuted prosecuted to the full extent of the law, including sedition, because it was sedition. And, and, Trump, and they, I think he should, I absolutely think he should get sedition charges for- He won't for, get anything. They won't do anything. They'll never do anything to a- I know the they won't, president. but they, they should. The president and all that, it, it creates- where I think Trump's going to go down is he's is his um, civil liabilities that he has right now. He's a terrible businessman, and he he does he's not president anymore, so he can't be corrupt and you know uh, and just and fleece people like he he was doing. Um, he's he just and now did. He has all these civil liabilities stacked on top of it. Uh, I think the guy's going to go broke unless. Um, his followers just keep throwing money at him like they're happy to do to keep him yelling and, yeah. and keep uh, keep him charged. Uh, uh, although, you know, they, they're fickle. They may go to another, you know, find another banner, another person to carry that banner, someone who's a little more charismatic. Trump concerns me a lot less than the next one who comes along who's going to be have Trump's ambition, but it's going to be yeah, a lot smarter, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think we need to show... And, and this is something I've been saying for 30 years. If there's bad behavior in politics, for example, the Iraq war, which I protested, I was in favor of intervention in Afghanistan because of 9-11. And there was, I thought there was clear evidence that the Taliban was involved. So we intervened, we did our thing, we, then we leave, right? For ju- we desk justice. Um, the Iraq war, there was no evidence and it wasn't in our national interest. It was going to be a waste of money, energy, time, and it was going to have blowback on us, which is something I agree with Ron Paul about, actually, mm-hmm. um, that there was going to be huge blowback on that. I protested that war. And I was and, literally sitting in jail as the bombing started. <laughs> America has suffered enormous consequences of it, but the people who did it, you see them on TV. They're still pundits. You know, yeah. there's these, these people who said, yeah, it's going to be great. The war, it's going to last six months. All those people are still being paid by major media to be experts on anything. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't be considered experts on wiping their own, their own rears. They, 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 they called this a catastrophic war absolutely dead wrong. And we're just supposed to all like, ah, oh, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. No, you don't. And, and the people who are involved in that war no consequences. So like my view is it, there doesn't seem to be any consequences of bad behavior in Washington. And in, until there are, they're just going to keep doing it. So so it's the same thing with the right wingers. They take over the wild, they, they yell in your face, no consequences. They get on, they 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 just start, it's almost like a political form of Tourette's, political, they just say, blur things out to try and get attention. There's no consequences. They, so they keep doing it. They amp it up. They take over the wildlife, Oregon refuge, no, no real consequences. They take over state capitol buildings, no real refuge. They walk into everywhere they want to go with a machine gun on their back, no real consequences. Now they're in the capitol building. No, any, Should there be real consequences? Yes. And when there are, then the, the, this basically what's become a delusional fascist movement. Factually, I'm not, it's not hyperbole. It's just using the dictionary to my advantage. 
right. movement, they're, they're basically saying, uh, you know, well, if they, they coddled us, they didn't do anything, they didn't react, they're weak. And we want to be in charge and we really don't care about democracy because we're willing to believe anything. And we think we're right no matter what. And we will never acknowledge the legitimacy of the left in the United States to do anything, to have any rights or that they're even humans, that they're even people. So there should be consequences for them. Yes. Anybody who participated. Now, if you, I have friends who are still even like they went on my my wall and they were like, yeah, but did you know that it was faked? It was all actually, you know, Antifa plants. And I'm like, you're gone Bye." you know, I didn't block them or anything, but I was like, I'm not going to let you crap on my wall you know at least i have some control over that in my life that you can't do that you can't there's one consequence for you of being being you know absolutely out there and dangerous um yeah yeah, and so yeah i think that i would love to see the authorities do the exact same thing i would love there to be consequences for any of this this horrible horrible behavior from the top down uh, you know, some on the Democrats, mostly on the right wing in this country for the last 40 years. And that it's brought, it's, it's basically caught, um, pl- implant, uh, recognized, pulled from the fringe, uh, a nascent fascist movement. The people back in Eisenhower's day when we had real Republicans back in their, their day when they considered them like the lunatic fringe, they weren't anything to do with them. Now those people are, you know, mainstream Republicans yeah. and they're, they're Congress people who during on the, during the insurrection were like, yeah, yeah let's do this. That's well, I've got to say, I think the most cowardly. Yeah. I mean, but there has to be consequences or this is going to happen again and again and again and forget bipartisanship. If there is no bipartisanship, forget it. Yeah. Never. It's not done because until there are consequences of bad behavior and re, that rewards good behavior, there's going to be no good behavior. Yeah, and to me, the sorry, but I get I get fired up about this. Yeah, to me, the most cowardice act in this whole thing was uh, Lindsey Graham getting yelled at at the airport, and then just <laughs> backtracking on everything, yep. you know, and becoming, you know, that that's got to be the worst. All right, so we're gonna get into spoilers. So um, sure. So um, this at this point, um, we're going to start talking about the book. So if you haven't read our war, uh, pause this podcast, order it, read it, uh, get it from your library, uh, whatever you have to do to do that. And then come back. We'll be here. You can unpause us at that point. But before we, before we let off the spoiler horn, um, what's, can you tell people your website and the best place to find you? Uh, although I'll put it all in the show notes, of course, as well too. Oh, sure. It's the best place is craigdelouis.com, which is my name.com. And I do have lots of um, I have a, a, a blog there you might find interesting where I review lots of things. I, I'm lots of media I'm consuming. And yeah. uh, also you can find descriptions of all my books and links to my pages on Goodreads, Amazon, uh, Facebook. That kind of thing. Yeah. And if you follow Craig on uh, Facebook, you get um, some some pretty good uh, movie reviews that that I mostly agree with. Um, <laughs> it's always, I always put in there, you know, your mileage may vary. Your mileage may vary. I think, um, I think you were underwhelmed with Greenland and I was a little more defensive, defend, I defended Greenland a little bit more than you. But other than that, yeah. I've, ag- I've agreed mostly. And, and 
Maybe I was being too kind to that movie. I don't know. Anyways. Yeah, and um, I hope I didn't sound too harsh because my goal was always never to, I never want to trash anything. I always, you know, a lot of love and energy and effort goes into this stuff, even if it doesn't turn out super for the majority yeah. of people. Um, yeah, so so I always try and find like what 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 is some of the good stuff here at least. And so even though, and even though it wasn't my thing, you know, for example, I remember going back at like, zombie con and like some other horror panels when i would be talking about zombies and people would bring up twilight and they get all mad and i'd be like it's it's not bad i don't like it i wouldn't read it but like it's got its market you know like you got everything has its market you have to everything is a definitely a, a your mileage may vary kind of thing all yeah. is all right so uh spoiler horn has been blown whatever we need to do uh, we are in spoilers. Um, so like many great war novels, there's lots of different POVs here. Mm -hmm. um, but the narrative is structured in a really smart way to balance the parallels for the characters on the right and the left. And one of the things that I thought was 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 really good on, was was how those parallels were set up. Are you an outliner or a pantser? I'm an, I, I, I'm a plotter. Absolutely. Okay, good. We're on the same page because yeah, I, I, I find it very difficult. I would find it very difficult being a, I mean, I'm at a level now where I consider myself, I mean, I, I, I still do the lighting stuff, but I consider myself a professional fiction author. Yeah. Uh, in that I'm earning, you know, a, a substantial income from it. And I, I could not do that and have the level of output I have if I was a pantser. I just couldn't do it. Well, you yeah. know, it's yeah. it's really easy for some writers who are professional who are pantsers because they don't have anything else in their life that they're doing. It's a lot easier to just like pick up the novel from yesterday. But if you're a professional in some other career, or you're, you're balancing that, you know, um, you may have a couple mm -hmm. days where you can't get back to the book and having the outline is very important. <laughs> well, and I also, also publish as well, you know, so so I have like, I publish these um, series of what I call diamond novels are 40,000 word short novels in a series that's very pulpy and kind of goes back to that dime novel era of what they what they were doing you know where you would have some a likable protagonist in like a pop boiler series or a western series I do a lot of world war ii series and you know I'll come out with one a year so that's five or six books at 40 40,000 words plus a novel I write for orbit of around you know 90 to 100,000 words then that, that then part of it is rewritten. Then I write probably 100, 150,000 words for my lighting. I have to, plot. I can't pants it. You know, like there's no, 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 no way no. I can produce all, all of that. I'm, um, a I'm a religious outliner. And, and, and I, um, you know, uh, probably the most religious pantser on the planet is Stephen King. And there's a reason why some of his books don't have endings. They birdwalk and meander for sure. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, but that, you know, I think that everybody pants like, you know, I do, I do my plot points. I do my yep. character arc. And I, I have this really strong mental visual image of, of the ending and, and, uh, and the climax and, and, the, and the inciting incident, first pinch point, second pinch point. I do all that stuff. Everything else in between, you know, I'll write notes and stuff of where I think it what would be cool. But really, I'm, it's a pro, you know, I'm pantsing it, but what we call a process of discovery. So you're now, yeah. So one thing I did on, on, I just 
finished last year, the longest novel I've yet to write, which is 138,000 words. And what I did was I chopped up the book into five sections. And what I did is I redid the outline with each section, just with yep. what I was learning about the novel. And it's I, a I living mean, document, what they call yep. living. It means it, you're constantly changing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's not, not written in stone. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and just because you've seen the map doesn't mean you've seen the city. Yeah. So, um, and, and I sold so a novel to Hachette on a character arc, like extended character arcs. That was a, yeah. a, and, but the novel I handed in was, you know, basically that, but it was very, very different. And, you know, there was, there's no, yeah. he was happy with it. He it had the same spirit, had the same themes, had the same characters was, you, you, you can go off the outline for sure. Now the characters, did you, um, come up with the parallels that you wanted to build and then build the characters backwards from that? Or did you kind of pick like Hannah and Alex and then kind of build their arc from 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 there? I'm, one, I'm wondering about that. Yeah, the, uh, the latter, but yeah, then both, right? So right. Yeah, yeah. I, I started with the kids because um, there there are child soldiers in in this future war, and to kind of show, I did that for several reasons. Uh, one, I wanted to show that in civil war everybody fights and nobody wins. Uh, I wanted to show the real victims of civil war, which are the innocent, and I wanted to show, have protagonists who had no, they did not care about the politics. They, they were kids and like the politics is all gobbledygook to them. When they hear about like, we have to have this type of economic system and political system, the kids are like, I have no idea. But they understand things like family, belonging, safety, you know, they, they're, they're, they're orphaned. And so they end up with these different militias. In a way, they they're the most important them. class in America is the people that don't really care about one side or the other you know yeah in fact that's most of the people in the book they're just refugees you know they're just trying to survive and it's a very small number of actors who are actually but you know that falls into actually the right wing mythos which is the whole idea of like say like a um, militia like the three percenters uh they they believe that the american revolution only three percent of americans were actually involved but they overthrew the greatest empire on earth to build this, to start this new country. And so they, that's, the, so they, this novel sort of kind of follows that. We're like, there's the people who are fighting or, you know, they have to, or they are severely motivated to, but nobody else wants to have anything to do with it. They're just trying to live their, their lives. So that's why I had the kids in there. And then when from, and I wanted to have them on opposite sides for obvious reasons. Yeah, and that then, happens in civil wars. <laughs> yeah, but I wanted to kind of subvert it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a familiar symbol of, of uh, that, of civil war, you know, family split, but I wanted to subvert it a little bit. Yeah, um, and then you also had Hannah ending up with like the free women and with like kind of like um, a matriarchal, like yeah. radical, like- Based on collaboration, yeah. Collaboration, consensus building and, and, and you know, um, that going on which was was cool and then contrasting that in the parallel with alex who um you know was in a very different situation yeah very male dominated very i i slapped you what are you going to do about it 
stick up, yeah. you know, stick up for yourself. What are you, what are you, uh, a girl, you know, that kind of. And attitude. like they celebrate when, when, when he uh, kills in battle and then, mm-hmm. but. He's a man now. Yeah, he it which ends up when you get the confrontation at the end gets kind of reversed, mm-hmm. um, and so um, you probably well anyone who listens to my podcast regularly knows that um, I use these two words all the time because to me all story writing is parallels and reversals, and one of the reasons why this novel I was like pumping my fist a lot is because um, it's all about parallels and reversals, which mm-hmm. is um, to me, all storytelling is parallels and reversals. It's like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you set up something and then you pay it off or you reverse it or you, Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the only other kind of story is one where you're looking at two different types of walks of life and comparing and contrasting and that's parallels. And what Mm -hmm. I loved about this book is because it's all over the place, but it's not just Alex and Hannah. It's also, um, the people that they meet um it's um the character from unicef um who's kind yeah, of there's like, gabrielle who's a gabrielle. worker and she's sort of our she's sort yeah. of us like yeah. coming in naive and caring and like these are this is what everybody should be caring about but it it's not happening so what that's alarming and i'm upset now like that and i i, I need to toughen up and take a stand and try and make things happen uh, in a bureaucracy and in the middle of a civil war where everybody seems to be fighting me in an effort to like try and take care of these kids. And you have Aubrey, who's sort of like the moderate liberal Clinton type of Democrat. Like she believes like if only everything would just go back to the way it was, everything would be great. But that w- the way it was gave us this terrible thing. So maybe yeah. I, it shouldn't go back to the way it was. Uh, but that's how they see it. You know, they romanticize like, you know, the, the Clinton era was the best era, uh, that kind of thing. And um, but she's also a reporter. And so you get to see how a journalist covers uh, war like it's she's sort of like an, a homegrown war correspondent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have Mitch, who is a right wing. Uh, he's a militia sergeant in a right wing militia. And he's very respected by his militia. And you get to see through his eyes you get to see what he believes in and then also how he kind of hates all these other militias that are on his side. Like there's an evangelical militia that is cr- known for its brutality. He does not agree with that. Uh, he does not agree with um, the libertarians. He, he's a, he's a patriot. He thinks minimal government. He wants um, English as a national language, that kind of thing. Um mm-hmm. And so he he's a he's you know one of the, part of the there's like five major branches of the right right wing movement and he's he's in the one called the Patriot uh, movement, and so we get to through him we get to see more of the right wing point of view because with Aubrey we get kind of a moderate left with Gabrielle we 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 don't get a political but she is sort of what we would consider probably liberal back home. Uh, and then we have the two kids who don't know what's going on, right? So I needed someone to kind of speak for the right-wing point of view uh, so that I didn't make them cartoon villains because- well, and, and that's most- of the world. I mean, they, they started a revolution. Yeah. The revolution got stalled and now it's a civil war. All these bad things are sort of because they didn't like the outcome of a, an impeachment. Um, yeah, it's so like that. Mitch- 
didn't want them to be cartoonish evil. I wanted you to understand that they have a political point of view and they have a story and this is what they, it's how they see the world and this is how, what they want. Mitch reminded me of there's a guy who's on all the insurrection videos. He's walking around like saying, no, 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 we don't do this. We don't do that. But he's already yeah. there and he's in a freaking yeah. bulletproof vest and, and a yeah. helmet. So it's like, no, dude, yeah. too late. Too I'm not late. here to rise up with this guy and I'm here to protect the guys who are rising up. Yeah. Because it's their constitutional right. I'm just here with a gun. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but it's important though, as far as the reversal in the story and, and kind of where it goes to is one of the most important parts is that it's Mitch's heart that kind of breaks yeah. when, when um, the confrontation happens between um, Alex and Hannah, which by the way, um, uh, is the best scene of the book. It's totally heartbreaking. Um, uh, like I, I kind of, I knew as a storyteller that they were going to have a confrontation. I assumed one of them was going to die from the yeah. beginning. But one of the things I always tell people about, like, if you look at the, the dog chapter in I am legend, I don't know if you've read I am legend, but, um, Oh yeah. 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 If you look at the dog chapter in I am legend or a, a more modern recent, again, with a dog, but, um, Tim, Tim Levin's, uh, the silence there, like the, for 45 pages in, in Tim Levin's book, you know, that their dog, who never stops barking is going to have to be killed, that they are yeah. going to have to kill this dog. Otherwise they're all going <laughs> right. to die. Yeah. And even though you know, it's coming, it is so heartbreaking in that book because yeah. it's done well. And what yeah. was great about the scene for me was I knew Hannah and Alex were going to have a confrontation. I assumed one of them was going to die. And even though it happened, it, it hurt me and you had the line, literally the sentence, something inside Mitch broke and having it through Mitch's POV yeah, and having that moment where Mitch, who is the militia guy made it, that was a very smart choice storytelling wise. Um, so I'm gonna um, do an internet high five for you uh, because I, I just, I, and I pointed it out in my review because I just, I just thought it was the smartest narrative choice. It was it was really um, above and beyond what the book's about. It was just mm -hmm. a great storytelling moment where um, I was right there. And so what happens in the scene is Hannah, um, and you had to bounce between POVs a little bit. And Hannah and Alex were just you know came together in a moment where Hannah has a has a bomb and she's she's about ready to kill a bunch of people in the militia and Alex gets her in his sight and has to make the decision whether he's going to shoot his sister or not. And he chooses not to. And as a result, Hannah ends up killing him. Right. And Mitch is the one who's on the outside that sees Hannah realize she's killed her brother. It, it's awesome. Great moment. It's fantastic. Um, were you, this had to have been in your outline early on. Is this something that you were building to, or is it something that came up like later in the process? Like, Oh, I got to do this. Like, can you tell me about oh, yeah. that? Well, like you said, it's a civil war novel. <laughs> you have family on opposite sides. Obviously their paths are going to have to connect either. They're going to end up having to 
bump into each other and end up on the on the same side, um, or they're going to end up shooting at each other, and you know what somebody's going to get get hurt or die. Um, I chose to pick the darker path because I thought it was a little less TV and a little more realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, just like it's realistic that for Mitch, it's as powerful. It's more powerful because he is so entrenched and he started this thing, right? So yeah. uh, for him to to learn something, I think is really powerful. And uh, but I think it's also more realistic that it's not like he's like, I'm just going to go home now. It was all a mistake. You taught me something. Like it's not like that, which yeah. is also very TV. It's it's instead. I'm gonna I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get her out, even if I'm killed, because yeah. she's a child and she shouldn't be here, and yeah. and she needs help, and and uh, she reminds me of my little girl, and we're all we are all people, you know, we are all Americans, and these are things that he's been thinking, and so um. So this is the moment of ultimate partisanship taken to the most violent, awful extremes. Did it hurt writing this scene? Because I think it would probably. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. you 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 know Stephen King calls these the characters the darlings, right? For for a good reason, and uh, and I um yeah you 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 fall in love with your characters, and you 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 are always trying to figure out a way to keep them alive, and then they just but the characters always tell you what they need to do, they not what they want to do, but what they need to do, and somebody needed to die there and that's that's what happened and that was the catalyst for for redemption for and and setting off this chain of events that uh would save her you know would save somebody um the 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 survivor and so that that maybe they could be a child again you know uh ring of fire was a book that i thought about for 15 years before i wrote it because i spent a lot of that time researching some of the things that i was doing and um, there were moments, there's some similar kind of very hard, there's a, there's a really brutal scene between a father and son in that book that um, I knew for 15 years, one day I would, <laughs> I would write it. And um, I'm not even a parent. I, I made the choice not to have kids, um, but um, I am an uncle. <laughs> I do. uh, I'm a teacher. So I do care about young people. And even though I spent 15 years knowing I was going to have to write this scene and it still broke me, Um, like writing that moment. So I can imagine, even though it's clear that this book was, was from idea to, to writing was not that long of a time. Um, it's clear still that you developed a relationship with Hannah and Alex Mm -hmm. and that had, that had to be uh, hard, hard to do. Especially Hannah, it seems like Hannah's a character that, um, I mean, all the characters are very well done in this book, but I think Hannah comes off as, as um, you know, the, the, the child soldier aspect of it is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. That's her on the cover. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but well done. Uh, <laughs> I uh, uh, oh, thank you. A lot of the ideas and the things that are going on, like that, I don't think those are spoilers because I think those are things that uh, kind of are universal to this issue. I think what becomes spoilers is what happens to the characters in this book, and 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 what I really, really 
really enjoyed in our war because I, I kind of knew what the politics were going to be coming in. Uh, I obviously had a little bit of the skepticism being from Indiana, um, although I'm stoked you chose Indiana, <laughs> right? Um, I, I don't live in Indiana anymore, but I do have Hoosier pride. I do love Bloomington, uh, especially. And um, you should go spend more time there now that now that you uh, put it through the ringer. Um, but I think what uh, what really uh, makes this book work is the characters. So, and um, I would say um, I'd already made the decision that I was going to read more of your work, but uh, definitely that that last scene with Hannah, Alex, and um, and Mitch uh, uh, locked me in. I was like, all right, well done. Well done, sir. Uh, you you are a good storyteller. I can tell I, I need to read more. Um, so on that note, uh, is there anything else in the, did you have, what was the challenge that you didn't foresee coming in, in, in unfolding this narrative um, to kind of close out our discussion of the writing of this? What did I miss? What, what, what was the, uh, the, the, the part you didn't expect to be a challenge? Um, for this, this novel yeah. specifically? Um, uh, yeah, I think the, the biggest challenge was uh, just knowing I wasn't going to be able to please everybody, you know, and that you were going to, you could, if you were fair, that meant you were left. Yeah. It's just how it is. There's a lot of um, right-wingers, like you have one right-winger character does something bad. It's like, it, that's, that defines the review. Uh, you know, you're suddenly this rabid leftist and that's your book, your book's a rabid leftist read. And because well, it's not to the left of Attila Hun, you know, Attila Hun didn't write it. So it has to be left. And that's just, which is just further commentary on it, where we are, and that's pretty sad. I have um, a, I have a right wing friend from Indianapolis who I suggested this book to, and um, we had a kind of spirited discussion about it, but he hasn't read it he yet. Uh, he hasn't read it uh, yet. Okay, when he reads, I would really love to know uh, because yeah, it's really, it's a genre that attracts. Well, he's not a. Just but, for, but, to be clear, he's not a Trumper. He's a Republican who despises Trump. So he's closer on on, on that. Okay, well, maybe 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 you'll like it. I'm not. Yeah, I'm yeah. Sure. But um, anyways, he but he did kind of say to me, um, he's like, well, of course it's going to be it's going to be totally lefty because you recommended it to me, and I had to point out to him that one of my favorite kind of end of the world novels of the last couple of years was that was it, I think it's called one second after mm -hmm. the, um, the uh, EMP book, which was written oh, was by that Newt Gingrich or no, no, it was the guy who wrote a bunch of books with Newt Gingrich. Oh, okay. Newt Gingrich didn't write it, but he blurbed it. Oh, gotcha. And, gotcha, gotcha. and um, that book is like Matheson level, great storytelling. It's a, oh. it's a really good book. And, and the guy wrote books with, Newt Gingrich, right? Yeah. And and I always have to remind him one of my favorite science fiction writers is Neil Asher. And anytime Neil Asher talks about politics, I want to gouge my eyes out. <laughs> but uh, I tell Neil all the time, I'm like, I love your fiction, but like when you get yeah. talking about politics, I just I, yeah. I I have to turn away. 
So it's not that I can't, you know, he's a right winger and I love the Skinner is one of my favorite 21st century science fiction novels. That guy is as right wing as a British person can be. Um, And, and uh, I love that book. So I'm not, I'm not against it. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it gets a bit much like with Heinlein, you know, like Starship Troopers is too much, too much. Yeah. Uh, But uh, what I do really appreciate in this book is, is I do think, um you you give voice to both sides and 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 i do um i do recommend i do really um i think it's it's written great and i think it's interesting you say that that you can't please everybody it's true but you know what every writer needs to remember that when they yeah i I would say more so so than usual (laughs) in this case more so than usual because of the nonfiction concept right Yeah. yeah yeah and because there's and it's so close to, and it ended up, yeah. So, I mean, January 6th, like, um, you got into uh, that rarefied error with the uh, John Bruners of the world who predicted the internet in 1972 with Shockwave Writer. And, um, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, people read the book cared, but like, nope, you know, other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the people who- I, I got a review recently where it was like, oh, somebody, the president got impeached and he refused to leave. How original. And I was like, I wrote this book. <laughs> Look at the copyright date. Yeah, <laughs> that was a running, that was a running theme on this podcast in the, in the last year because I had Paul Tremblay on who wrote a pandemic book and uh, Josh yeah. Mellerman, whose sequel to Bird Box is all about- um, whether you should wear the blindfold or not. So it became yeah, like yeah. a mask debate and, you know, totally unplanned, you know, written long before uh, 2020, but it just. Uh, yeah. I mean, so a couple of people before January 6th, they, they read my book and then I got a couple of reviews. This would never happen. And then like, I, and then afterwards it was like a couple of reviews were like, Oh, how original. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You found it in the middle. All right. So, Jan, uh, please everybody. Yeah. Craig, uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to you about this book. Yeah, it's, same to you. It's really great. Um, and uh, I'm sure I'll read more of your work in the future. Um, I have crazy TBR, but when I get there, I'll definitely love to have you back to break down um, uh, uh, whatever that one is that I read next. <laughs> um, uh, you know, because this this isn't your newest uh what is your newest uh release children of the red peak uh, yeah the children of red peak's the latest one um yeah. and then another one is one of us all of the the books i write for bigger publishers are i would consider them strong thematically they have a very uh high-powered non-fiction concept for the fiction yeah and so suffer the children is about the love parents have for their kids and how far they'll go how far would they go and one of us is about prejudice, uh, as reflected in a misunderstood monster novel told as a Southern Gothic. And then the Children of Red Peak is about belief, um, expressed through a novel about a cult. Um, so take, take, choose your poison, and yeah, you know, holler back anytime. I'll be sure to check out uh, Ring of Fire. You said was yeah, that was um, it was uh, nominated for the Splatterpunk Award for best novel. Oh, right on. Um, uh, nice. It's, um, as far as my work goes, it's the one I'm probably most proud of. Uh, part of the thing was with that and writing that one was that um, I had, we had a terrible wildfire in 2003 in San Diego. Mm-hmm. 
and it was I was up in San Francisco protesting the Iraq war. And when we drove back into town, the, the fire had started and we were literally driving through LA to get gas and it was snowing ash. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And we drove back mm-hmm. overnight. And when we got back to San Diego in the morning and we all had gas masks because we were afraid we were going to get tear gas at the protest. Yeah. The air was so bad. The sky was, orange Mm -hmm. and they had shut down the city and told people not to go outside like stay inside the air is too bad but we had these gas masks so we put gas masks on and we went for a bike ride in deserted Mm -hmm. san diego and i literally saw a tumbleweed at one point go go down the street and the whole novel came to me while I was sitting on uh, standing. I was on my bike wearing a gas mask, the most Mad Max thing I've ever done in my life. And I said, I so thought to myself, through. I'm glad I'm surprised you were able to bike ride with that thing. Oh uh, yeah. Well, you know, the police stopped us at one point and they were like, you can't be out. And then the guy looked at our mask and he laughed and he said, well, maybe you can. <laughs> and uh, it was hilarious. Cause he wasn't like that pissed, but he was just like, just go home. Um, Cause we had this orange midnight thing, but the idea came was I basically was like, well, what if this was all a smoke screen to uh, kill off our population? Right. Right. And it took me 15 years to get to the point where I had done the research and do, knew enough that I thought I could, could do it. And one of the secret uh, weapons that I had um, was that, I was really involved as an activist and and this is really weird coming from an animal rights activist to doing this, but I was a big San Diego chargers fan. And, um, I was, I decided to get involved with the activism to try and keep the team from moving to LA. And for the first time after years of doing environmental and animal rights activism, I, I was, we were protesting at the mayor's office saying, you know, save our bolts, right. Mm-hmm. And save our team. And, and we wanted the mayor to help us. And the mayor invited us up <laughs> to talk to him. Yeah. And it turned into every month and a half, we'd have a meeting with the mayor and his staff. <laughs> and I'd never had access like that as an animal rights or an environmental activist. I was getting arrested at all right. these places. But what really got me to the point where I was like, okay, I'm going to read, I'm going to write Ring of Fire was I was sitting in the mayor's office and the mayor was late and I was sitting with his chief of staff, who was a guy that I had become friendly with, Marshall. And I said, hey, Marshall, who's in charge of of, um, planning for massive wildfires and huge disasters? And he's like, oh, it's this guy and this, 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 this. And, and I was like, so do you have a plan for it? I started interviewing him just like sitting there. And then he was like, Oh, you should talk to our disaster expert at the water board. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And ended up the guy was a horror reader and like a massive Peter Straub fan, which was just interesting. And then that guy was like, Oh, you think that's scary. Let me tell you about, uh, the San Onofre nuclear plant. And uh, we have one pipe of water, one pipe that brings all the water to San Diego. And if that pipe breaks, well, we'll have a Fukushima in 15 minutes. 
Wow. And I'm just like, uh, excuse me, um, take notes. <laughs> and uh, but then Marshall became my secret weapon because I I was like I had a guy at the city, and every time we would have a, a football meeting at the mayor's office afterwards, I'd say, Hey, Marshall, do you have a minute? Mm-hmm. And I'd sit there and I'd say, and so one of the things I'm really proud of is I based a character after Marshall in the mayor's office and um, uh, another guy who's a contact, who's a journalist in town told me that the way that I wrote city hall for San Diego was so believable to him. And um, that he really just like, he's like, man, you fucking nailed all those parts. And I was like, Mm -hmm. Well, that's because I was spending a lot of time on the 11th floor at City Hall. Yeah, and, uh, I'm a research hound, so I, I love this story. This is good. Yeah, yeah. And research so, gives you so much to, more to work with, I think. Yeah. It's and restrictive, still, but it also gives you more. Yeah, and since we're still talking and, 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 and the listeners are still there, and that reminds me now is I didn't ask you about research. What was the most important aspect of, of, of research for you for this? Like I did everything. I I researched everything from, you know, what would the battle line look like if it was on this street? And then how many, how what are the houses like, you know? Um, did you go to Indianapolis? Did you go drive? No, down no, no. I, did, I yeah. couldn't, couldn't do well, that. Well, that's the good thing about Google Earth. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I've spent yeah, a lot of time on that. There's so many more tools now. Uh, you can do a ton of research. I did a ton of research about weapons, the Civil War in, in Bosnia, uh, this the uh, Spanish Civil War, uh, yeah. how the UN works, how UNICEF works, how, the, how humanitarian aid is handled by the Canadian Canada. Uh, how what airplane would carry that aid? What would the aid look like? Where what air force base would a stage out of in Canada? Like you just keep going, and and then you you end up you you just take to have a notebook full of notes, and that informs your uh, your book. And of course, I did a ton of stuff on the divide, you know, the right left divide in the U.S. Yeah, well, and that's one of the fun things about doing the podcast is you can come sneak research into uh i based a character in the novel i just finished off a a astronomer ravi Loeb, and because i'm doing the podcast i was able to say hey can you want to come on my podcast and talk about um your book and then i could stay online and talk to him afterwards so the the podcast can be a secret weapon as well um but and then i found with ring of fire i found the after action report like marshall gave me the clue that there was an after action report from the fire that had inspired the uh, story. And I, so I got the 135 page after action report, which is the reason right. why San Diego has not had a fire like that since then. Right. Is because we as a community learned a lot. And unlike other parts of the state, San Diego has worked very hard to make sure that didn't happen. It happened one other time, but not as bad. And, you know, it's funny because, um, yeah, I am a researcher. I read all 135 pages of that with a highlighter. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, you know, maybe nobody else will notice. But for me, um, you know, and I interviewed the wildlife firefighters and 
yeah, the whole thing. I love that aspect. It's so much richer, like, because uh, my self-published stuff is the World War II stuff. So I'm reading one one series was set. It was about a tank crew. So I was reading every single thing about what it was like to be in a tank, drive the Sherman tank, shoot the Sherman tank, what the, the, the ta tactics individually, squad, platoon, you know, the, just everything, the history, with the slang at the the era, like every single thing was was researched to make it as realistic as possible. Yeah, I have and a Vietnam just, it just novel. Flavors it. I have a Vietnam novel I want to write one day, and uh, but I don't feel ready. But I I literally over there have like forty five books about Vietnam mm -hmm. that I'm like at some point um, I just read a little bit here and there and I can put it to the brain. But uh, mm -hmm. you know, someday hopefully, but. And I think this is good because uh, I like the spoiler section. I, I've talked to other friends who are writers that listen to my spoiler sections like of these to try and learn things. And I have never, I haven't talked as deeply about research before on the podcast, but I, it is so important. And you get story nuggets out you of do. these things. So many great little details. Yeah. And it's like, it to come alive. Yeah. And when you get to interview these people, that guy from the waterboard, it's hilarious when he was like, He's like, well, you're writing about San Diego. He's like, have you thought about talking to somebody from the water board and TJ? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, of fucking course I need <laughs> to talk to the guy, TJ. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because we have a twin city in another country, which is a very unique situation. Yeah, I'm familiar with both cities, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's one of those things. Well, Craig, it was awesome talking to you. Um, sorry I uh, went off on my, my yeah, own no tangent, but Yeah, but it was I, great talking to you too. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, we'll talk Hope again. We can do soon. it again sometime. Yeah. And writers, uh, take note there. Research, research, research. It's like, totally. it's, uh, I love it. it's, it's, it's all a part of the process. Um, yeah. And then every once in a while, you're lucky you got a story that's right out of your life and you don't need to do it as much. But usually, mm -hmm. still, you can find something to research. So, mm -hmm. Craig, uh, our awards, uh, awesome book, highly recommended. Uh, definitely. Um, uh, um, but of course, if people are listening to this point, they've already read it. So, um, but it was great talking to you and uh, I'll be in touch again soon. You thanks. got it. Thanks very much. Oh, wait. And thanks uh, everybody for, uh, for listening. Cheers. Yep. Thanks.